Hello, this is Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So have you ever tried to actually love your enemies? If you ever have, you know that it is next to impossible, right? (laughs) By definition, we don't really want to love our enemies, and based on their behavior and attitude and actions towards us, we really have trouble loving them. So in Ephesians 3, 18 through 21, which are the last verses of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul provides two ways that we can learn to love our enemies. And these two ways he provides to us seem impossible until we learn to understand what Paul is actually saying about how to love our enemies. But before we do that, we are going to answer a question from a reader about Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So let's turn to that question from a reader. So this question actually comes from one of the members of my online discipleship group. He is taking the online course about hell, which is based on my book, What is Hell? And he had a question regarding Matthew 10, 28. Here's what he wrote. Jeremy, I love this course and it helped me out immensely, but I'm trying to figure out Matthew 10, 28 with this new understanding of hell. Would you be able to explain this passage? Okay, so uh, Matthew 10, 28, I already sort of read it in the introduction, but here's what it says. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, it probably would have been wise for me to address this text in my book, What is Hell?, and in the online course about it as well, but for whatever reason I didn't. I do mention briefly Uh, this verse in a couple of places in the book, but I don't actually spend much time explaining it. Now, I have addressed this previously on my uh, blog at redeeminggod.com, but it wasn't in regards to Matthew 10, 28. It was in regards to the parallel passage, Luke 12, 5, and I'll include a link in the manuscript section for this podcast if you want to go read that. But I think you'll get the general gist of what I say there. Uh, by my explanation here. So uh, in Matthew 10:28 and in Luke 12:5, the first thing to recognize is that there are several translation issues about this verse, uh, which uh, create some divisions in Christianity about how to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And the primary issue here is when Jesus says, "Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell." Who is the him? that Jesus is referring to, okay? We have a pronoun here, him. And who is that him? Uh, The New King James Version, which is my primary uh, translation of choice, capitalizes that word him, which uh, sort of tips their hand. It shows that they think the him is referring to God. But of course, other people have different views, and, and the capitalization of the pronouns were not inspired anyway in the original Greek of this text, so uh, that's sort of a translation choice that they have made, and that, that shows that uh, the translators of this verse think that Jesus is referring to God. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God, this is their idea, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Okay, well, that's one view, but another view is that the hymn does not refer to God, but instead refers to Satan. And um, in my original discussion of Luke 12, 5, a couple years back, uh, that's the uh, approach I took. I now have a slightly different view, actually based on some conversations I've had with members of my uh, online discipleship group, and uh, based on my study of hell. Okay, uh, and, and I've, led, I've come to this conclusion that it's not referring to God or Satan, uh, because of some of the other key words in this verse, primarily this word Gehenna, which is the word for hell that Jesus uses here, uh, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Gehenna, as I discuss it in my book, What is Hell? and in the online course, does not refer to some afterlife experience where unbelievers get tortured and scream and burn and suffer for all eternity. Okay? Uh, instead, the word Gehenna refers to an experience in this life where pretty much everything you hold dear, everything you love, cherish, value, uh, all your hopes, dreams, and desires, everything gets destroyed. Um, and, and you're left with just ashes in your life instead. Okay? In fact, in my book, What is Hell? and in the online course, here's what I say about Gehenna. When the various texts are considered, Jesus speaks of Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom. It was actually a literal place outside of Jerusalem, sort of a, a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Jesus speaks of Gehenna not to teach about what happens to some people in the afterlife, but rather to teach about what can happen to some people in this life. Okay? People were literally sent to the Valley of Hinnom, uh, maybe because of a crime or because of some disease like leprosy that they had uh, contracted. And when they went to live in the Valley of Hinnom, they would lose their friends, their family, uh, their job, uh, all of their acquaintances, and their life would end up being filled with uh, horror and decay and destruction because they're living in a, a garbage heap, which was often set on fire outside of Jerusalem, a horrible place to live. Okay, so I go on to say this. The warnings about Gehenna are given by Jesus so that we do not destroy our health, life, family, friendships, and reputation in this life. Rather than live in the valley of death, God wants us to enjoy everything he has given to us in this life. Okay, so with that understanding of Gehenna in view, that helps us understand Matthew 10, 28. And Luke 12, 5, Jesus says that, uh, look, being killed, losing your life is not that big of a deal, at least not as big of a deal as having your life destroyed while you're living it. Okay, if you die with your morals and your values intact, with your loved ones and your friends thinking highly of you, then all you really lose is your physical life. And since we know that life goes on for eternity, Right? Losing our physical life now is really nothing more than just a step through a doorway from one life, this life on this earth, to our eternal life, which, which of course is a better, never-ending life. And so it's, it's a win all right, to live as Christ, but to die as gain, as Paul says. Okay, So, so that's, we don't need to fear that, uh, but it's much worse, Jesus says, to have your life destroyed while you're still alive, uh, to lose your friends, your family, your health to lose respect and honor from other people, to lose your morals, your values, your beliefs, your convictions, right? to lose everything that makes you, you. 
And Jesus says that is what we should fear. That is what we should seek to avoid at all costs. Okay, it's far better to be killed. This is how you could understand this verse. It's far better to be killed for your, for your beliefs than to abandon your beliefs and your convictions. All right, Jesus is saying this. Don't fear those who can kill you because death is not the end. But do fear those who can threaten and steal your values, morals, convictions, integrity, dreams, hopes, friends, family, job, health, and everything else of value in this life. That is who you should fear. That is who you should avoid. Okay, and who is that? Well, <laughs> um, ourselves, number one, right? When we lose our life and everything we hold dear, usually it's ourselves to blame, but not just ourselves. It's usually those who led us astray as well. And, and there's a wide variety of people who can lead us astray into destroying our life. Uh, in the context of Matthew 10 and Luke 12, I believe Jesus has the religious leaders in view, which is surprising. We often think the religious leaders are those who are going to lead us into to the right way to live, and Jesus is saying, no, very often the religious leaders are going to destroy your life. Uh, so anyway, it's a very, very surprising sort of twist that Jesus has on those words there. And um, But uh, that, that's what he's saying here. So, so this view, basically, my view on Matthew 10, 28 and Luke 12, 5, it does fit perfectly with my proposal in my book that hell, again, is not this afterlife experience of torturing and suffering and burning forever in a lake of fire, but is instead an experience in this life of destruction and um, <clears throat> all of our hopes and dreams turning to ash around us. So uh, living contrary to everything that God wants and desires for us. Okay, so, so Jesus is warning us against those, even ourselves, uh, who can lead us into a hellish existence in this life. That's how I'd understand these verses, uh, and I hope that makes sense to you. Let's get on then to our study of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. All right, so in these are the last verses of Ephesians chapter 3, and here, uh, sort of in the context, Paul is wanting the church, calling for the church, praying, instructing, teaching the church to lead the world into the way of peace. He's been, this has basically been his entire argument for all of Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. In Ephesians 2, Paul showed us how Jesus did this in himself uh, through his life and death. And then in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, Paul shows us how he himself was doing this, even by allowing himself to get imprisoned. Okay, and now in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, first part of that we looked at last time, Paul is saying, based on the example of Jesus, based on my own example, here's what I'm praying for you, you Ephesian Christians, you who are reading this letter, which now includes us. Uh, Jesus loved his enemies. I'm loving my enemies. I want you readers, to love your enemies as well. That's what I'm praying for you. Now, it seems impossible to love our enemies, uh, to, to uh, you know, do what cannot be done. And that's what we looked at last time in verses 14 through 17, um, where we can do what where Paul prays that we can do what cannot be done, to do the impossible. And now in Ephesians 3, 18 through 21, Paul continues to write, about what he is praying for his readers, which again includes us. And there are two more impossible prayer requests here, which of course are only possible through Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so, so let me put these final two prayer requests in a bit of context for you. Have you ever tried to get along with someone that you just can't get along with, right? Maybe someone at church that you avoid Sunday after Sunday, maybe a neighbor that you just hate and can't stand to be around, okay? If so, then you know how difficult it is to do what Paul is calling us to do here. Uh, it's to, to live at peace with others, especially those that hate us and when we're honest with ourselves, we hate them in return. Okay. So Paul says, get along with him. And we say back to Paul, Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. I can't get along with them. It's impossible. You don't know what there is between us. You don't know what he's done to me. You don't know what they said about me. I can't live at peace with them. It's impossible. Okay. So that's why Paul is praying what he prays here at the end of Ephesians chapter three. He says, I know it's impossible. So my first prayer request again, which we looked at last time, verses 14 through 17, really verses 16 and 17. My first prayer request, from, uh, says Paul, is that you would do what you cannot do. That you would do what cannot be done. Okay? Uh, that's uh, the prayer for power to do the impossible. Prayer for power to be at peace with people we'd rather hate. To do what we cannot do. Okay? Now, the second prayer request and the third, which we're looking at now in verses 18 to 19, builds on that. And this second prayer request is a prayer for knowledge, to know what cannot be known. Paul says in verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and here's the key point here, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Okay, to know that which cannot be known. So this is not some, you know, ho-hum prayer for good weather and good days from Paul here. Uh, Paul is praying that we would be able to know what cannot be known, do what cannot be done, uh, to, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And uh, he, he has described this, he describes this love here in verse 18. Um, he says, we might comprehend, there's a similar word for know there, you know, understand, uh, the width, that's, that's how wide it is. The length, that's how long it is. The depth, that's how deep it goes. The height, that's how high it rises. Paul is basically saying, look, there is no, no limit to the love of Christ here. It's without width. It's without length, without depth, without height. It's infinite. And, and is it possible for us with our limited human minds to know anything that is infinite? It isn't. And so that's why Paul says to know <laughs> the infinite love of Christ, which obviously, by definition, cannot be known. All right, and so this is the, the second prayer request of Paul. First was to do what cannot be done. Um, third, to know what cannot, or second, to know what cannot be known. And then we'll return to this idea. But now the third uh, prayer request there at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, in other words, to be filled with what we cannot be filled with. Can we be filled with all the fullness of God? Of course not. How big is God? How how what is the 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 size of God? Can can God, the infinite God, fit inside this little sack of skin and bones and flesh? Of course not. I mean, if you know some basic theology, you know that God is omnipresent. That means no matter where you go in the universe, God is there. Every bit of God is there. Every, uh, God is everywhere. Uh, even <laughs> the universe has an edge. Uh, but God even exists beyond that. The, the universe is not infinite. At least we don't think it is. Uh, I don't think it is. Scientists don't think it is either. Um, but where time and matter cease to exist, God doesn't stop there. 
he keeps going. So even the universe itself cannot contain God. Okay? Um, and, 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 you know, uh, Solomon talked about this. When he built the first temple there in 1 Kings 8, here's what he prayed. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promises to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Okay, Solomon, wisest man to ever live, understood that uh, God couldn't be contained by the heavens, even the highest heavens, much less this temple. And yet Paul is praying here, at the, verse 19, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, if the universe can't contain the fullness of God, how can we? So you see here, this is another impossible prayer request from Paul. But that's what Paul prays for that we would be filled with the fullness of God. It's an impossible prayer request. We've seen all three impossible prayer requests. To do what we cannot do, to know what we cannot know, to be filled with that which we cannot be filled. Okay, and those are the three three things Paul prays for. Now, they're all in the context of loving our enemies, okay, which is specifically doing what we cannot do, what cannot be done. Paul said, love your enemies. We say, Paul, we can't do that. He says, I know, that's why I'm praying for it for you to be able to do it, that you would have the power to do what you cannot do, okay? And now these second two prayer requests sort of show us how we can do what cannot be done. And the second prayer request, knowing that which we cannot know, knowing what um, is beyond comprehension, uh, is the first part of doing what cannot be done. The first way, the first step in loving our enemies is knowing that we are loved by Jesus Christ, okay? And and it's so important to understand what Paul is talking about here. It's important because we need to realize, before we set out, try to love our enemies, we need to realize that we ourselves are, or maybe it'd be better to say, were the enemies of God. Did you ever realize that? You were the enemy of God. Uh, When Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden by choosing to go their own way, eating that forbidden fruit, they took all of humanity with them into rebellion against God. In in a sense, they switched teams. They, They joined the rebellion of Satan. Okay, and so we became the enemies of God. And yet, God never stopped loving us. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, While we were yet sinners... Another way of saying that is, while we were still the enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. Okay, and and that's the point Paul himself made back in Ephesians chapter 2. How contrary, we we lived every way in death against the will of God, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and then Ephesians 2, 4. But God, okay, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God stepped in to show that he loved us, even though we were his enemies. Okay, so uh, if we are going to do what cannot be done, that is, love our enemies, then the first step is to know what cannot be known, which is God loves us. We are his enemies, and he loves us. Okay, now, you might say, Jeremy, this is a very basic uh, truth, 
I know that God loves me. We all know that's the first thing we're taught in church. First thing we're taught in, in, in Sunday school, God loves us. Yeah, 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 we got it. Let's move on. Well, I know that. Uh, but do we really, um, you know, why is it that the love of God cannot be known? I'm fully convinced. Now, now, first of all, yes, the love of God is infinite. Paul talked about that, the depth, height, width, length of God's love, okay? It, it's infinite, okay? So even if we think we know that God loves us, we'll never be able to fully comprehend his great love for us. Again, I tend to think we, we, we know that. But even among Christians who give lip service to the idea that God loves us, I feel that most Christians still don't actually believe that God loves us. Okay, few of us really believe it. Uh, You ask most Christians, and we all fall into this from time to time, myself included, uh, we know that God loves us, but we think that there are times or things we can do or events in life or whatever where God stops loving us. Or maybe he still loves us a little bit, but, you know, he turns away from us in shame because of how we behaved or we sin. And so, uh, you know, he he turns from loving us to start punishing us or something like that. Um, or, or, you know, we don't we don't read our Bible and pray enough. And so God is disappointed with us or or we have impure thoughts and, and you know, we fall to sin and temptation. And so we don't do the things good Christians are supposed to do. And so we feel like. You know, God sort of steps away from us a little bit and says, well, I I don't want to associate with you. You're not my friend anymore. (laughs) Look at the way you behave. Okay, this is the way most of us think about the love of God. You know, oh yeah, God loves us, but there are times when we think God turns his back on us, you know, hides his face from us in shame, doesn't want to associate with us, is sort of disgusted with us because once again, for the thousandth time, we fall into that sin. And that's the way most people, most Christians, think about the love of God. Which just goes to show us that most Christians know nothing about the love of God. The truth of the matter is that God loves us no matter what. His love never changes. It never diminishes. He never turns his face away from us in shame. He never tries to separate himself from us because of our behavior or how often we've committed a certain sin or how great our sin is or anything. Let me say a shocking statement. You could become Hitler and God would still love you. Okay, I know that's shocking, but it's true. That's the extent of God's love. And the fact that it's shocking to most Christians just goes to show us that we don't know anything about the love of God. No matter what you do or don't do, God will always love you. Okay? Uh, God will always, he will, he will never stop loving you. Uh, he, he will never turn away from you. He will never hide his face from you in shame. He will always be with you, will always forgive you will always embrace you and accept you. And until you begin to understand this, you will never understand God. You will never begin to understand his love for you. And as a result, you will never be able to begin loving your enemies. That's why Paul says the first step in doing what cannot be done is knowing what cannot be known, which is how much God loves you.
You can only begin to love enemies when you know you are fully loved. Now, I could talk a lot more about this, uh, so many truths all over the scripture, but what I'd prefer to do is recommend two books to you that really helped me see this myself years ago. Uh, One is He Loves Me by Wayne Jacobson, and the other book is The Misunderstood God by Darren Hufford. Again, there's links if you, don't, if you don't want to write those down, you're driving in your car, there's links in the manuscript section for both of those books. Uh, they're available on Amazon. But uh, both books present the true radical nature of God's love for you. And, and that's essential to understand before you can start loving others. Okay? Now, uh, even after we begin to know the love of God, though, love for our enemies doesn't come from ourselves. You and I cannot generate love for people we'd rather hate out of ourselves. It's, it's not within our power. Okay? So, and that's why this third impossible prayer request is so important, which is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, If we're going to do what cannot be done, love our enemies, uh, it begins by knowing what cannot be known, which is the love of Christ or the love of God. Uh, but even then, in order to love others, We need to realize that that love for others doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God in us. When we love others, it is actually God loving them through us. When we love others, this love for others is the love of God working in us, uh, through us, toward others. And this really is is sort of the great secret of the church, the mystery of the church, which Paul has been talking about as well. Uh, We are, the church is, the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to this world. Now, we, we often talk about Jesus being the incarnation of God. Well, guess what? The church is the incarnation of Jesus. We are the body of Christ, and that's not just a a symbol, symbolic terminology that Paul uses. I think he means it almost literally that Jesus Christ is incarnate in us. When we love others, it's Jesus loving others in us, through us. Uh, And and when we are filled with all the fullness of God, his love for his enemies, remember he loves us because we are his enemies, God's love for his enemies uh, flows through us toward the rest of the world. Okay, so, so those are the three prayer requests of Paul. To do what cannot be done, which is love our enemies. We do that by knowing what cannot be known, which is God loves us. He really, really loves us. Okay, and being filled with what we cannot be filled, which is the loving power and presence of God, so that his love for his enemies works its way through us toward our enemies. Okay? That's the three prayer requests of Paul, (laughs) and even explained they still seem impossible, but that's why Paul prays for them. Uh, And he knows they're impossible, he knows they sound difficult, so that's why he closes out Ephesians chapter 3 with some final words of encouragement. Uh, He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, Paul has prayed these three impossible prayer requests, and now Paul says, you think these are impossible? Well, God is able to do far beyond this, far beyond anything we can ask or even think or imagine. 
Okay? Uh, so, so this is nothing for God. It may be impossible for man, but it's not impossible for God. Uh, not only can God do it, he can double do it. He can triple do it. He can do beyond anything we can imagine. Okay? He can run circles around it. He can do it with one arm tied behind his back. You get the idea here. Okay? Um, uh, he, he, and, and, and why to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations? All of this is done by the church, through the church, in the church, so that God gets the glory for all generations. This concluding remark here at the end of chapter 3 brings us all the way back to what initially sparked this conversation at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. You remember when we talked about that? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 is all because of the last verse, last couple verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have great inheritance and riches in Jesus Christ. Okay, and then right there at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, he calls us to be the fullness of God in every way. Well, it sounds very similar to what Paul has just written here about having the fullness of God dwell in us. Okay, uh, so, so there's sort of these bookends here of what Paul is. He said, look, I want you to be the fullness of God in this world. And if you go back in Ephesians chapter 1 to see why, it's because... Uh, we are to teach the world, the principalities and powers of this world, a better way to live. And that's what Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all about. Okay, and, and, and so uh, Paul, God has created the church to be the fullness of God in this world so that we can love our enemies and show the world, show the principalities and powers of this world a better way to live rather than in violence and, and, and war and bloodshed and death and accusation and all of that, uh, we can live in love and forgiveness and peace uh, and mercy extended to others, loving our enemies as God loves us, okay? And in that way, this is the church, the glory of the church, shown to all generations of this world throughout history, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so, so, so Paul is bringing us back and saying, this is how I want you to live. This is how, why God created the church. This is our goal and our purpose and our function in this world. Uh, we are to be the fullness of God who, who is showing the glory of God to this world, showing them a better and deeper and greater way to live. And this is the glory of the church. This is how the love of God is manifested to the world. Pretty amazing concepts, right? Uh, it, it's exciting because this shows the task and mission of the church. Now, we're only halfway through Ephesians. Uh, so, so what is the rest of Ephesians chapter 3? Well, the, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, Paul goes on to specifically apply. You can almost think of the second half of Ephesians as the practical application of what Paul has taught in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Okay, uh, Sit, walk, stand is sort of the outline of Ephesians. Uh, Paul has just shown us all the truths that we are supposed to sit in, seated with Christ. Uh, all of the truths, that all the blessings and inheritance that we have been given. And now, 4 and 5 is how to uh, walk in these, practically walk in life. So, so that's where we'll be heading next. And then, of course, stand there at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, standing strong in spiritual warfare. We'll be talking about that there when we get there. Anyway, um, we're done with Ephesians chapter 3, sort of the teaching truth section of Ephesians. And so now... Even though there's been lots of practical steps and calls to action in these three chapters, Paul begins in chapter 4 to get really down into the concrete, nitty-gritty details of what this looks like as we live in peace and unity with each other so that we can also show the world how to live in peace and unity as well. 
that's where we're headed next time. Uh, it will probably be sometime after the new year when I pick back up in Ephesians chapter four. So I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful new year, and we will see you in 2022. All right. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you next year. All right. Bye.